the Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. For details, visit dockedge.nz. Good evening, everybody. Just a royal update. Uh, people are going into the church. They found it. It's where the Normans hid from the general public uh, for about a thousand years. Still doing it, by the way. Oh, it's very exciting. Max Cryer's gotten here early. We'll rope him into some royally stuff. Oh, maybe just a little bit before 10 o'clock this hour, but definitely we're going to go max, max, maximum max. With royal information, he's been to a royal wedding. He went to Princess Anne's, was it that one? No, it was the other one. Um, got married to the Fergie. Who got married to Fergie? I'm not really up with this. I'm better at the older ones. I don't know anything about this lot. The one who married Fergie, that one. He, uh, Max went to that wedding. Had cake and everything. Woohoo! I think he performed at it as well. So he can tell us the um, inside story of Westminster Abbey, as well as St George's What's-Its-Thing at Windsor. Uh, just reporting now, yes, the grass, there's grass, I can see grass, people milling around, walking about. There are people in those funny bare skin, bare hair hats. Oh, get out of the way, they got to... Oh, these people almost got knocked over by these marching soldiers, for goodness sake. Keep it under control. Would have been a busy week for MI6. Or is it MI5? Prince Andrew, thank you. MI5. Alrighty. Uh, the, the royal breakdown and origin of various royal terms. We've heard breaking news this evening that Harry is now the King of Sussex. No, the Duke of Sussex. is the Duke of Sussex. He gets that. That's his wedding present. A big chunk of England. Um, so that's very nice. Also tonight, we're going to resume normal programming after 11 o'clock. That's another album from the class of 1978. Kate Bush released her debut album, The Kick Inside. Some of the tunes were written when she was about 13. It's quite amazing. Uh, the album was released when she was 19. Kind of young, but not that young when you think of great young bands that have made great debuts. Um... And there's this funny thing. My favourite song in the album is called Man With A Child In His Eyes. Stupid title, but anyway. It's a gorgeous piece of music. But you have a look at the video, and the video is just silly. Stop being so silly, Kate, and putting on this funny face and look at, look at, looking at me like that. You look away, and it's a thing of great grandeur. So in case you stumble across it on YouTube, here's with it without any video, and it sounds beautiful. Just in case you're not going to be up between 11 and 12, which you might not be. This is a lovely thing. I hear him before I go to sleep and focus on the day that's been I realise he's there when I turn the light off and turn
pretty, eh? Waiting at the video ruins it. Okay, well, we'll take a short commercial break. Well, it'll be the same size as all the others, quite frankly. But uh, the other side of it, we're speaking with a monarchist. I'm kind of an apathetic monarchist in that I don't think they create much um, trouble for us. But he's an active monarchist, as in it's a damn good idea, and he's going to try and explain why. He's also a historian as well. Dr. Sean Palmer will be with us the other side of the commercial break. It's 12 after 9 o'clock. Good evening. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. On the occasion of a royal wedding this evening, it's quite a show. People love it. But what does the monarchy mean? Sean Palmer from Monarchy New Zealand joins us. Happens to be in Canada, another part of the empire, <laughs> as it used to be. Sean, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Uh, it's, uh, it's great to be here. I think most people in Canada would probably prefer to be uh, sharing the Commonwealth with New Zealand rather than sharing the Empire, but we'll take what we can get. I just went for the old school term. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote a little thing up on the web page outlining how I'm a monarchy apathist. It's not broken, don't fix it, and people may be forgetting how tricky it might be to fix things that aren't broken. For one, the Treaty of Waitangi. Now, you've seen this small rant. Your response to this, you're a more positive monarchist. Do you think it's actively good? Oh, definitely. Look, I, I have done some fairly extensive grad studies on, on the subject. My PhD was on the value of the monarchy to democracy in general. Certainly we can, we can talk about the implications for the Treaty of, of Waitangi, but if I was going to pick the most important reason as to why the monarchy is very valuable, I would say that it forms a framework for very successful democracies all around the world. And I don't just mean Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the UK, but you know, most of the most successful democracies in the world are constitutional monarchies, like Sweden, Spain, Denmark, Japan, the list goes on and on. And there's something about this system of government that works very, very well. Are you sure of cause and effect here? They may just be happily aligned with other factors that are more important. Oh, look, there's always a question of cause and effect. You know, that's the difficulty in the social sciences is you can never be absolutely certain. But when we look at whether you would rather live in a republic or a monarchy, there'll be some monarchies which are not pleasant. Some in the Middle East are quite dictatorial. You wouldn't want that. But they represent a small part of the monarchies around the world. If you're choosing a republic to live in, there's a small number of them that you would want to live in, and most you wouldn't. So generally, I err towards monarchy as a position. Well, people rail against the idea of monarchy because it's a position of, well, statehood power, even though, you know, most of the monarchies have been declawed, but it's an inherited thing. There's no qualification. Right. It's really quite a remarkable element there that while on the surface we look at it and say, well, that doesn't seem terribly democratic, somehow it provides this sort of fertile field in which democracy grows very well. A lot of people with Republican aspirations in New Zealand and even more so in Australia, it's that feeling of being quite grown up and we're not going to be patted on the head from halfway across the world. Here's where I'm kind of on your side on this. That's changing a hell of a lot of stuff that's going to be expensive for not much other than, oh, it just feels better. That's right. There's a sort of amorphous belief there somehow that we'll 
feel better. Once upon a time, maybe back in the 50s or 60s, people would say, we have to grow up and become a republic. I would say now, in the early 21st century, we are grown up. New Zealand is a fully free, independent, democratic country. We set our own policies, our own foreign affairs objectives, you know, our nuclear-free policy. I don't think we have to grow up any further. I think we are a, a fully mature country, and the fact that we choose to share our head of state with other countries, you know, the Queen of New Zealand is the Queen of Canada and the Queen of Australia, that's quite a remarkable thing. There are no other countries in the world except these 16 who share this top office. Mm. That's almost something we should be proud of. Mm. Yeah, and people shouldn't confuse the Commonwealth with having the Queen as the head of state because you don't have to to be in the Commonwealth. Look at Mozambique. That's right. Bloody hell. I know there will be people listening saying, by Christ's sake, Graham, what about Gough Whitlam in Australia being sacked by the Governor-General? Sure, that is a very interesting example, and I often start when we address this by saying that the monarchy works so well, we rarely think about it. We rarely have to worry about it interfering in the normal operation of day-to-day government because it works well. When you live in a country where the government is always interfering in, in some way, it's because something's not working. But if we do look at Gough Whitlam, what's intriguing was the prime minister that was being tossed out said, this is a coup. This is a royal coup. It's outrageous. Well, I would point out that all the governor general did was call an election. Yeah. He said, the prime minister is not able to pass a budget at the moment, which is traditionally the test for any prime ministers. Can you pass a budget? And he could not at the time. So... The Governor-General said, we will call an election and let the public sort this out. There has never anywhere in the world been a coup that started with an election. Mm. And that's that's where I would generally come on that. Okay. And the Labour Party did lose all their money in a pyramid scheme. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Okay, we'll leave that one as it is. Uh, we'll have some fun with some history here. Mm. It used to be thought of for a very, very long time that the King was actually literally, chosen by Jesus Christ and was therefore a special person on earth. King John came after Richard. He was the first to cop a bit of a declawing with the Magna Carta. Yeah, I would say that's about right, yeah. From Mm -hmm. there on, what was their path towards being less and less and less directly powerful so they couldn't say things by fiat or edict? That's right, yeah. Um, Well, and actually, I I think that path that we see, this slow evolutionary path away from dictatorial power is one of those reasons that the system has been so successful. It's very flexible. So over the centuries, different groups, high nobles and powerful landowners, and then it would have been the merchant classes, and then it would have been the ordinary people in the 19th century. The last thousand years of royal history has been about bringing more and more people into parliament to advise the monarch so to speak. On paper, the monarch is, generally speaking, still an extremely powerful figure. You know, we say the prime minister advises the monarch rather than orders the monarch. But we have a common understanding that the monarch will follow the advice uh, over time. And I think that was just people asserting their right to have a say. The biggest occasions would have been in the the 17th and, and early 18th century, 
where they actually drove a king away. They drove James II away. They cut the head off his father, Charles I, and I think that would have put a bit of fear into future monarchs. There's still this loophole that you just mentioned that you say the monarch still has quite a lot of power because the Prime Minister advises the monarchy. Why have that loophole at all then? Well, I mean, there are some constitutions around the world, and I'll give you an example. The Republic of Ireland, it says in the constitution, the president shall sign a law once it's passed by parliament. That gives him no discretion at all. Whatever the law may be, no matter how bad it may be, no matter how unpopular it might be, if it got through Parliament, the president does not have the power to refuse to sign it. With our monarch, there is an undoubted understanding, and it's true of the governor general as well, that you're not forced to sign it. You'd have to have a pretty darn good reason why you wouldn't, because you're going to provoke a constitutional crisis. It just gives us a bit of flexibility in the system. We all know politicians love power, and if they get a little power hungry, I like the idea that there's someone above them who's looking out for the whole nation and who says, you know what, I think, Prime Minister, you might have gone a little nuts there. Maybe we should have an election. Right. So It shouldn't happen, it shouldn't happen often. Mm. That would be bad. Mm. But it's, it's a good safety break. In fact, that's how the King of Spain stopped a coup in 1982. Gosh, yes, that wasn't long ago, um, was it? Yeah. It wasn't. You see, that's, that's the, the really intriguing thing is that sometimes constitutions do hit a speed bump, you know. Democracies go well and good merrily along their way right up until the moment they don't. And then the question is, are we going to get over that hiccup mm. or are we going to fall flat on our face? This is good fun. We're going to have even more yep. fun. We'll take a short break, but when we come back, we're just going to have some fun with the royal wedding, of course, Harry and Megan on show this evening. We'll be back very shortly. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. Sean Palmer from Monarchy, New Zealand. Uh, fun facts about royal history and the wedding, of course, between Harry and Megan. Quickfire questions, I suppose. Why St George's Chapel instead of Westminster Abbey? Was Westminster Abbey booked out? So Now, that's a very good question. I suspect there are very few... Uh, events that could happen in Westminster Abbey that would trump a royal wedding. So my guess is it probably wasn't booked out in any serious way. I think the bride and groom probably just thought they'd like a slightly smaller venue, a little closer to home. So it's not a bingo night that's stopped them? No, I suspect not. But if it is, well, wasn't it nice of them to let that bingo keep going? Yeah. And they go off to St. George's instead. Many brides and grooms have had to take their second choice and... Perhaps that's what happened there. There has been a recent rule in primogeniture, the protocols of that, you know, eldest son. It's always been the eldest son that was automatically in line. That's changed yep. now. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. Your thoughts that's on that? Correct. Oh, I think that was a fantastic move. I think it was long overdue. And again, it's part of the evolution of the system. What's really remarkable is we have a system of pl- in, in place in New Zealand that guarantees that our next head of state is 50-50 chance, male or female. The next three, we know, are all male. But whenever George has his first child, Mm. it's a 50-50 chance it'll be a woman, you know? That's extraordinary when you look at countries that have never had a woman as their head of state, ever, in centuries. And even though we had this male preference primogenitor, women have been head of state in New Zealand 
for about 75% of New Zealand's history since the Treaty of Waitangi. Right. Because, of course, Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth have lived all that time. They've hogged it all. They got the lion's share of it. And they're still going. No sign of letting go. Three lion's share, should we say. (laughs) Ha-ha. Yeah. Catherine American was rather upset with Henry that he wanted to get rid of her. The accusation was she was married to Henry's brother, and that's a no-no in the Bible. He found he found that after finally reading Leviticus. Right. Catherine Merrigan said, it's not a proper marriage because we didn't have sex. Now, does that still mean that the marriage between Harry and Megan is only official until they've had horizontal rumpty-pumpty that evening? Well, I must admit, I've never gotten a question like that in my capacity as chair of Money New Zealand. I'll probably plead the clergy on this one and say that Technically, I think the church decides the importance of consummating the marriage, which I think is perhaps the term they would use rather than the horizontal rumpty-pumpty. That's a biblical term. um, It's a biblical term, is it? Okay. Um, (laughs) At any rate, I think that that's a clergy question more than a monarchy question. Let's get to the clergy then. You could be the firstborn woman, now be queen, but not if you're a Catholic. Yeah. That's still a no-no, eh? Can't marry a Catholic. You can marry a Catholic now. Oh, you can can't you? be Catholic and become monarch, but you can marry one. That was one of the things that changed when we changed the primogenitor, is that we said, yep, we, we updated a couple of things. And one of them was also, yes, you can marry a Catholic. And it's true, unfortunately, they require that the monarch... Uh, not be Catholic. Had yeah. Lutheran monarchs, we've had Anglican ones, we've had... I don't think there's any place for that in the modern system, mm. but we'll, we'll get there eventually. This will be the next step in the evolution, I'm sure. Okay, well, there's a difficult uh, chicane to get around there, and that's uh, that when you're the monarch, you're, you get another job since Henry VIII, and that's you're the head of the Church of England, and that's kind of hard to be if you're bowing to the Pope. That's true. It's, a, it's an interesting political thing that, that developed there, and there's a number of of monarchs in Europe and around the world that have religious roles, but then there are those that don't have them either. And I would guess as we move through a more inclusive 21st century and and possibly a more secular one as well, that we'll probably see a a diminished royal presence at the top of the Church of England. You know, Charles has talked about um, being less concerned about being defender of the faith and instead being perhaps more of a defender of faith in general. Even he is is looking at it saying, we might need to to think about updating that at some point. All the polls say Charles isn't that very popular, or, well, at the very least, when compared to the other options there, William especially, he's way down Mm. the list. Because of that, some people have suggested Charles just forfeit and let William jump the queue. Your thoughts? Mm. Well, yeah, that idea does get floated around, and there's a couple of tricky elements with that. The first is it's not actually up to Charles. Um, A lot of people assume that the monarch is eager to be there, wants to be there, ready to go. He's waiting for his mom to die so that he can take over, which sounds a little grim if you ask me. But ultimately, since the late 17th century, Parliament has decided who the monarch is. So, for example, just a few years ago, we changed the rules by which we'll select coming monarchs so that we don't preference boys over girls. We would have to do the same thing. If we said, you know what, Charles, we want to skip from Elizabeth straight to William, we would have to pass legislation to do that. 
Mm. And we could do that in New Zealand, but it's much harder to do it in Canada and Australia, which are both federation. There are 16 countries that would have to sort of coordinate this process, just like they did changing the gender rule. Right. So the idea that Charles can just pack it up and wander off, uh, not really. He works for us. And right. if he said, I don't want to, well, that's not really going to work. You know, when the British Parliament in the, in the 17th century said, okay, we have to maintain some control over these monarchs. They can't run completely amok. We're going to select one who will become the next king, and we're going to make sure that he understands that he and his descendants are going to follow the rules. That was a very important point for the development of democracy, and I'm very firmly committed to that. If we needed to change who was going to be monarch, we could do that. But I think it's also a power we don't wave around willy-nilly. Mm. Charles's ears stick out a little bit, and he talks to trees or something like that. And, uh, yeah, he's not going to look great on the cover of a women's magazine. But I think we want something a little more substantial than that okay. um, to be as a head of state. All um, right. Now, what and, do the outer edges of the royal family actually do? They, they kind of tail off, don't they, a bit where you end up with the third Earl of Shrewsbury or something? There's so many people right. related, just say, the last hundred years of the monarchy. Where are they hiding? What do they yeah. do? Do they have regular jobs and stuff, or do they do openings? And who, Where are they hiding? That's right. Where are they hiding? Well, there's some of them under the coffee table and some of them behind the sofa and, and you know, that sort of thing. Um, no, the, the most remote ones are working ordinary jobs. I would suspect that they're reasonably well off. Okay. So, you know, their, their jobs would not be your average nine to five computer programmer. But when we come a little bit closer in line to, say, the Queen's descendants, she has many grandchildren and many great-grandchildren. Some of them are working as political consultants, historians, curators in galleries and museums. There's, there's a raft of stuff that, you know, they grew up in an environment that would suit that. Right. But when it comes to those that are actually doing work for the royal family or for the nations that they work for, that's really one of the remarkable things is that we get an incredible cost-benefit because we don't just get a head of state in the Queen. We get her husband and her children and grandchildren, and they all undertake thousands of activities every year. When you total it all up, it will be many thousands. And we don't actually pay for what Princess Anne does, and we don't pay for what Prince Andrew does or even what one of his daughters might do. There is a reimbursement process for the, the upper royals, mm if they hold the state dinner, you know, on behalf of the government, that's an expensive proposition, and they're reimbursed for that. Oh, yeah. But they don't really get a salary, and the queen has always said, I will cover the cost for the junior royals. So if Princess Anne goes and holds a morning tea for Save the Children, the queen will pay for that, right. and not the taxpayer. And that's an incredible, not only do we get a whole workforce, mm. but we get it dirt cheap, too. Actually, it was quite a common occurrence for kings and queens of England to run out of money completely. Uh, yes, yes. That, there, we needed a funding formula uh, to, to make sure that uh, we could get around that, yeah. Okay, I want to talk about the Saxon kings because I think they are criminally ignored. Edward VIII abdicated. Bah, 
Wrong. What a lot of rubbish. He's Edward the Eleventh. Count them up. We're not talking kings of Wessex. We're talking kings of England. There was Edward the Elder, son of Alfred, Edward the Martyr. Oh, and Edward the Confessor. Quite a famous name. And then after Henry the Third, who was quite obsessed with Edward the Confessor, his son was Edward the First. Why? The numbering of monarchs? has always been a tricky issue. Oh. You're quite right in saying that there is a difference between a King Edward of Wessex and a King Edward of England. These were um, all kings of England. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yes, you're, you're quite right. And so there's really no excuse for us to not have that Thank you. Uh, marked down properly. But yes, it is a challenge. I suspect it was probably dynastic feuding at the time. Right. You know, well, this branch of the family isn't going to count that branch of no, the family no. because well, we don't like talking about them. It's those uppity um, Normans. They came in, they took over, yeah. and they said, right, we're going to do this the way we want to do it. Yeah. But, I mean, it's interesting because we all know Elizabeth I of England. Yeah. And we know Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom or of New Zealand. Mm. But there was no Elizabeth I of Scotland. And technically speaking, there was no Elizabeth I of Canada. Or Australia. So this was actually a fight back in 1952 as to what the heck her number was going to be. You're kidding. Yeah, no, no, this was a big deal. Winston Churchill had to weigh in on this. So everyone said, right, well, the first Elizabeth, we all know her, and she was the, the Queen of England. And the Scots said, well, hang on a minute now. We're in the United Kingdom. She should be Elizabeth I of the United Kingdom. Yeah. There, there were a lot of people who said, well, we're not just going to pretend that Elizabeth I didn't exist. We, we have to find a way. So one of the ideas that was put forward was, why don't we take the highest number from either country, England or Scotland, and we'll call the next one that number. So there was the highest number was, was in England, Elizabeth I. So the next one now is Elizabeth II. But there's never been a King Malcolm of England. No. But if we have a, a King Malcolm in the future, he'll be, I think, the fourth. Right. Because there were three in Scotland. Right, so James I, James VI sort of thing. So that's correct, yes. Right, right. In fact, somebody once said that George the Fourth mm. was George the Fourth of the United Kingdom, mm. George the something like George the Third of Scotland, George the Second of Hanover, oh. and George the First of something else. You know, they, they broke it all down. Right. So um, some people have too much time on their hands. Yeah. Uh, he he did actually. He was he got very fat. He, <laughs> yes, right. he did. But but he he acquired an enormous number of artifacts, which tourists go to Britain today. Right. To see yeah. All the jewels, all the artwork, all the palaces. Uh, it's paying off in spades now. Right. He did build some nice things. Yes, uh, he did. All right. Uh, now, royal weddings. This is what we're after. This is the big fat excuses if we needed to have one uh, about why to talk about all this stuff. Um, it's quite an affair. The public love it. Charles and Di, one of the most watched things. Then there was William and Catherine. We know what these look like, but there have been very short and quite rather secret weddings in the history of the English royal family, hasn't there? Yes, yes, there have been a few that seem to happen for political expediency, right on the spot. Very short courtships. One that comes to my mind was was one of the wives of Henry VIII. I'm just trying to think, was it Anne of Cleves? An incredibly short marriage. Oh. Uh, they, they divorced a short time later, 
Henry VIII had been sent a painting of her as a, sort of an internet dating profile. Right. Hans Holbein painted her picture, and apparently he was very flattering. And he sent it to Henry, and Henry said, sure, I'll marry her. He was reputed to have been nauseous when she arrived. He was very angry at Holbein. She didn't look anything like uh, the painting. So they were married, apparently consummated, and then dissolved very quickly thereafter. Edward IV, people don't know their kings, it was kind of like the start of the uh, Wars of the Roses. He got married to this right. really hot chick. Um, a complete commoner, Elizabeth out of the blue. Uh, Woodville. Yeah, the, the, the nobles uh, and right. his, his brother and everything came up and saw him and he said, oh, by the way, I'm married. Holy crap! Well, in fairness, there have been a lot of people who have, who have gotten married that way. I think you know, Las Vegas has, has made an industry of it. Yeah. And I think basically that's what Edward IV did, okay. is that he essentially uh, ran off, you'd say eloped. But when you're king, you know, you don't, you don't go missing for very long. <laughs> and, uh, and he came back with a woman on his arm, and everyone, including his mother, was furious. And, you know, when it came to marriages back then, there was a lot of politics involved. Yeah. I mean, it was one of the reasons Elizabeth I never got married, was whoever you pick, that family is going to really win big. Yeah. And their rivals are going to lose big. And they don't like that. It's one of the reasons that very often monarchs used to marry foreign royals. Right. It's not just to build an alliance, right. but to make sure that you didn't upset the balance at home. I see. And that's exactly what Edward did. Edward upset the balance at home, and it essentially fueled the War of the Roses for Didn't another help. 30 years. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you've got to be careful where you just uh, wander off and come back with a wife. We're not far from the finish line, as the church bells will begin to be rung shortly. If they have bells there, I'm sure they have. Now, Church of England, pretty close to universally accepting the sanctity of uh, same-sex marriage. They've gone through with female clergy people. If they go thumbs up, like so many things in the Anglican Church, they don't really worry about the Bible too much, and they say same-sex marriage is okay. Does that mean Harry, uh, let's say that's already happened, Harry could have married a bloke and that would be fine, just like Elton John? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that, look, that, that would have been, that, that's absolutely what, uh, you know, the royals are, are essentially held to the same legal standards as, as everyone else. So if that is the law, there's no reason that that couldn't happen. The only stipulation that is added to royals that the rest of us don't have to worry about is that you have to get the king or queen's permission. Right. So there's a document that's been on the Internet for the last few days, a huge, beautiful, illuminated manuscript in which the Queen says, I grant permission to my grandson, Prince Henry, to marry Meghan Markle. If in the future a monarch says to their gay or lesbian son or daughter, yes, I grant you permission to go ahead with that, that legal ceremony, that's perfectly fine. And, and, of course, we've had gay kings in the past, Yeah. Um, certainly some bisexual ones. Let's line them up. Let's line up the gay and bisexual kings. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to have to let you start with the earliest ones. Um, William um, Rufus, it was thought, William, that's a son of uh, William yes. the Conqueror. Right. Edward II yeah. um, was very fond of male company, mm. as they, they would have said back then. Perhaps a little too fond, they used to say. Mm. James I oh, right, uh, yes. maintained a, a favourite or two. That's the early 17th century. Queen Anne maintained a very close relationship with the Duchess of Marlborough, 
Oh. And uh, the, the Duke and Duchess of Marlborough, who are you know reasonably well known, but are ancestors of Winston Churchill, uh, as well as ancestors of Diana. Mm. They had a very close but quite tense relationship. It was it was said. Uh-huh. One of the great things about the monarchy, one of the things that actually makes it surprisingly egalitarian, is that whatever can happen to a person or whatever a person can be throughout their life. Mm. That can happen to a monarch. We had a king, the, the queen's father, George VI, who had a terrible stammer and was a very nervous public speaker. And he was extremely distraught about this sort of thing. But he worked to overcome that. Mm. And that's remarkable. He would never have sought election if it was a president. Mm. He never would have done that. It's a hell of a story, so actually, isn't people, it? Oh, it is. You know, I mean, look, we've had members of the royal family die in car accidents. Mm. We've had them die of old age. We've had them die of illnesses. We have had them born with minor disabilities. There have been blind monarchs and deaf monarchs. And it basically, anything that makes a person human, that happens to a monarch as well. And we get to see their whole life before us, basically, whether it's in the history books or in the newspapers, as is happening now. And that's quite remarkable. You know, when people elect a president, they often say, who is the best person for the job? Who's perfect? And often the, the public is very disappointed when they find out that the person they thought was perfect turned out to not be so perfect, as has been the case with many American presidents over the years. But we're not looking for perfect. We're looking for a person who is in this line, who is willing to do the job to the best of their ability. Whether they're male or female or gay or straight or tall or short or abled or disabled, we'll take that individual because they're in the line and they will do the job to the best of their ability. And I think that's an extraordinary statement about how much we as New Zealanders and and people in other monarchies value human beings for all their flaws and strengths and different gifts and abilities. Good one. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. Enjoy the royal wedding. Well, thank you. You too. Is it something that really fascinates you, or is this just a sideline? Your monarchy as a constitutional thought is something that would occupy your mind more. Well, generally, the constitutional stuff is my primary focus. But, you know, the human stories are interesting. And, I mean, I love the history of it. When somebody says, oh, what will Megan be wearing at the wedding? I'm not terribly concerned about that. But I know that different things appeal to different people, and I want to encourage as many people as possible to appreciate the different aspects of it. Okay, I think you've done so tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Sean Palmer, Monarchy New Zealand. It's been great fun. Thank you very much. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. For details, visit dockedge.nz. Human Statistics with Jonathan Dodd, a special this week. We're looking at the royals on this, this occasion of a middle-order royal wedding. Uh, not, the king, not the king that's going to be, uh, unless something dreadful happens. Or he gets, the William one just gets sick of it and decides to do something else, starting up a second-hand store in Knightsbridge. Who knows? Okay, Jonathan Dodd, what do we think about the royals? You've got the stats. Yeah, g'day, Graham. Yeah, interesting point about whether Prince William would I'm going to operate a second-hand shop. I know one of the Rolling Stones now operates a fish and chip shop. Yeah. So, yes, we did go around the world with the royal family in mind, and we asked about 20,000 people around the place um, a few things along these lines. And it's 
listeners are thinking, oh, for God's sake, I'm not really interested in the, in the royal wedding. Well, they'd probably be um, in, the, in the majority because only around 27% said they were at least fairly interested in it. In New Zealand? No, around the world. Oh, OK, um, yeah. But countries like New Zealand, naturally enough, are a little bit more interested. You know, mm-hmm. countries like South Africa and Australia, but not massively, only a few percent, really. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, let's go through the popularity of the various... <laughs> <laughs> those in oh, line, yes. shall we say. The family, the I firm. Know. Yeah. Uh, we didn't get people to rate the royals' bottoms, so Catherine's not number one. No. Um, but funnily enough, it is the Queen. So 42% on average said they, they were real favourable towards the Queen. But um, Prince William was actually um, pretty high as well, and while Prince Harry um, and a slovenly 41%, so actually you're only talking about a few percent here or there, but um, yeah, if, um, if something did happen and the sixth in, the, sixth in line to the throne did end up with a crown on, um, yeah, 41% of people would be happy with Prince Harry being there. Um, noticeably more than Prince Charles. So, uh, yeah, poor old Charles still wallowing around there. Only 24% mm. feeling particularly favourable about that's, old, poor that's, old Chuck. That's worse than Trump, isn't it? Or is he... Yeah, it is. It's much, much worse. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that's, that's pretty sad. Yeah. Well, at least Trump got where he was through, um, through some kind of... Electoral process. ...skill, you know, regardless <laughs> of how you call it. He, yeah. he got there through... Through you know, crock or by, or by have we going to call it? Charles, Charles just you know happened to be born. So, you know, love or hate Trump, um, he got there through um, his own fair means or unfair and, and a bit yeah. of overseas help. Yeah. yeah. Although uh, what our Monica did point out earlier on, quite interestingly, is that um, it, there's something tough about like it or not, you've got this job too, haven't you? Yeah, there is, and um, and while people like to throw brickbats at them, when you actually ask people, particularly those um, in countries with monarchies, whether the Commonwealth or other monarchy countries like Belgium and so forth, yeah. there's not a huge appetite for change. So all the Republicans are going, no, we don't want it and all the rest of it. Well, actually, only around about 15% of people in places like Canada and Australia think that it would be better if we abolish the monarchy. Yeah. And most people just recognise, well, it's a good thing for, for the UK, it's good for tourism, seems fairly harmless and uh, it's better to have a bit of pomp and circumstance than to than to get rid of it. Yeah, um, and I think a lot of it's just to do with feels and I, I think a lot of people don't actually realise ah, oh, the annoying work it would, that would be oh, entailed in changing the damn thing. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, they're just getting through Brexit. Let's just keep the monarchy. It's probably the last, last of um, remnants of the old-fashioned England that people want to keep. Mm. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. A shortened version this week. We just wanted to get the royal statistics. That's great. Max Cryer with us next. We'll talk you through the wedding as it's happening. Well, the, the fun bit where they arrive outside. Inside, but it's all churchy. Although, I don't know, Elton John might be singing a song. Uh, that's the rumour.
Yeah, it's a bit of a royal special tonight on the Weekend Variety Wireless. Oh, there's Serena Williams. She's got an invite. Uh, David Elton. David Elton. Elton John <laughs> and David. Uh, they've arrived at St George's, what's it called? The, the, the Palace. And Max has arrived here as well. Hello, Max. How are you? Not that we could call this a chapel. No. <laughs> You've been to one of these affairs, haven't you? Which one did you go to? It was the one who married Ginger Spice. Ginger Spice? No, no. I was, I was in the Westminster Abbey um, for Prince Andrew's wedding some ooh, years ago. Oh, that'd be an affair, wouldn't it? Well, a royal wedding usually is. I mean, you envy of the envy of all the thousands of people outside when you actually walk in with your invitation and sit yeah. down. And yeah, yeah. It's it's one up to um, getting into the nightclub. Uh, quite quickly. Look, these people are still trying to get, to get in. Hurry up, for goodness sake. One lot almost got knocked over by the soldiers with those big funny hats on. They weren't at slowing down. They had to get out of the way bloody fast. Um, but they say that um, we're going to get a glimpse at the wedding dress quite soon uh, because Meg Han Markle will be leaving with her mother. Now, is it Meg Han or Meg Han? See, it's got a rogue ache. Isn't it? Yes. It's a rogue H. I'm yes. not sure if the Queen's happy with this H in there. It should be just a straight M E G A N if she's but, going to be part of the royal but family. What's this H doing does there? the H lengthen the E or shorten it? We don't know. Well, every other detail has been canvassed and thrashed about. But so, this why is something <laughs> someone would ask you yes. next? I know. <laughs> well, I'm asking anybody, please, who can yeah. tell me. Mind yeah. you, presumably uh, some of the commentators will be English. Yeah. Or English. Although there are commentators all over the world. CNN's struggling. They still are arguing about why are, they, why are these limeys driving on the wrong side of the road. They can't get over that. Oh, that's very difficult for yeah. Americans. Isn't Americans it? can't really cope with anyone doing anything different from how they do it. Now, uh, <coughs> you, an interesting point. We, we've got a minute. We can carry on after the news, sport and weather, which we will. That's a really important, interesting point you made. The Markle old man... He's crook with a stent. He can't make it. And so Charles is giving her a way up the aisle. Why? Yeah, good question. Why? Why can't the mother? Well, that was my first thought. I mean, naturally, her mother, her yeah. real-life mother, is there. What could be more acceptable? Yeah. It's one of those strange things that feminists seem to have overlooked. Because I don't know that I've ever been to a wedding where the bride was given away by her mother or yeah. by a woman of any relationship at all. It really shouldn't freak anybody out. That happens. You were mentioning that um, Victoria did it. Oh, Victoria had no compunction about it. Queen Victoria, no, she gave her daughters away. She marched up the aisle with the daughter, and you know, oh. this is I'm giving her away, and you know, bugger the man. Well, she's um, carrying on with that tradition and be great. Well, Queen Victoria also invented the white wedding dress. She more on this and other royal information, <laughs> words, their origin and meaning. A royal special with Max Cryer in studio. It's ten o'clock.